As Kim mentioned, we're supporting uh, Turkey through International Turkey Network. It's, it's a strange thing, actually, to sing about the goodness of God and then look out at the world and see horrific events. Nearing 50,000 lives lost in Turkey and in Syria. It's hard to fathom that. That's almost Geneva and Batavia together, gone. It's hard to get your head around that. I've been corresponding via email with some pastors that we support in Turkey talking about the devastation. They're, they're a thousand miles or more from the epicenter, so they didn't personally weren't affected, but they know many, many people who have lost loved ones. And so your prayers and your generosity are, are needed. And I think, you know, every day, we don't always see it, doesn't make our news feed. Every day there are things in the world that are horrific. Loss of life in, right down the street in Chicago. Doesn't always get reported on. Yet we're people who say that God is good and he's sovereign and he's in control. We have to hold these things in tension. Trust the goodness of God and his work in the world with the fact that the world is broken and awful things happen. Yet he's placed us here to be a light, oftentimes in a dark place. And so we thank you for your generosity and your contributions and your prayers to make a difference where and when we can. Speaking of God's goodness, uh, next weekend we have an event called Good Design. You'll, there'll be a guest speaker. Her name is Rachel Gilson. She has a remarkable, powerful testimony. I'm excited for you to hear from her next weekend across all of our campuses, whatever service you attend. And then following that, that afternoon, Good Design, talking about God's good plan for human sexuality and gender. Now, this is a hot topic in our culture, often debated, lots of confusion. Our goal is two things. One, to give you clarity about what the Bible teaches. And two, equally important, to learn to love our neighbors well who don't agree or don't know what the Bible teaches. And so we encourage you to sign up to attend that. Uh, there's over 550, approaching 600 people already registered, so there's still room for you, but don't delay if you're interested in attending. That begins next week. We're excited about it. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you for bringing us uh, together this morning on a relatively warm mid-February day where we can sing your praises, confess our sin, Reflect on your goodness and come to your word. And so we ask you to speak to us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been tracking with us, we're in a series called The Gospel in Genesis, The Good News in the Beginning. Uh, we think of the gospel's beginning in Matthew chapter 1, but it doesn't. It's right there from the very beginning. God's good news and uh, the foundations for everything you need to understand about who you are, who God is, how to relate to him and to each other and in this world are laid for us in the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. And that's what we've been tracking through. Today we come to an important topic, which is in the very beginning. In the immortal words of the great cinematic classic, The Princess Bride... Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. If you've not seen that movie, you think I have something wrong with me, but go home and watch that classic. What, what is the place, what is the significance of marriage in our culture? I don't have to tell you that in 2015 there was a landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, the Obergefell decision, which redefined marriage to include not just one man and one woman, but same-sex marriage as well. Aside from the, the cultural redefinition of marriage, we've seen significant changes. Divorce rates in the U.S. are nearing 51%, and it's about the same whether you're a church-going person or not. Marriage rates have fallen steadily since 1960, 
people getting married later in life. I did a little digging on some statistics. I'm 53 years old, so I figured let's look at the last 50 years in my lifetime. 50 years ago, 75% of adults in the U.S. were married. Today, can you guess? 48%. That's a shocking drop in 50 years. Less than a lifetime. 50 years ago, the percent of adults living together without being married was statistically um, insignificant. Didn't even make the map of that. Today, 25% of adult women are living with a partner not they're, they're not married to. It's a massive shift taking place in our culture. I could go right down the list about what marriage is and why it matters. Our culture has been on a steady drift away from what you might call the traditional biblical view of marriage. It's not news to you. In fact, what we're going to talk about this morning is a minority view in our culture. But I, I would suggest to you, my good friend John Dixon, who's here and will be preaching to us in a couple of weeks, has said many times that Christians are the influence the culture best not from a position of majority and power, but from the margins. And so the fact that we're talking about a minority opinion is not a bad thing necessarily about what God's plan and design is for this thing we call marriage. Now, let me pause for a minute and just say a word to a couple of different groups in here. Some of you aren't married, and you long to be. And you think about, a, you know it's a marriage sermon, you think, oh, great. Another, I'm going to feel bad again. To those of you who are single, the church has often had a bad theology of singleness. You do not need a spouse or children to complete you or make you more valuable in the eyes of, of the church or of God. You matter, God sees you, and you, he loves you and has plans for your life whether you find a spouse or not. Some of you are here and you're divorced. You've experienced the acute, almost unspeakable pain of a failed marriage. You're not second class. You're not damaged goods. God is not done with you, and neither, is, neither are we. God sees you too. All of us, married or unmarried, should care deeply about what God has to say about marriage because it's his plan for, like, for, there are no single people without a, a first marriage, by the way. Like, it's his plan to bless the world. Going back to that idea of a redefinition, even the redefinition of marriage in our culture is saying that there was a definition to redefine. And any attempt to define anything, by virtue of defining it, is telling you what it is and what it's not, right? We define things by their function and by their limits, by their boundaries. Unless you're going to say that any relationship of any kind, of any people, is a marriage, at which point the word loses all meaning, you're going to say some things are not a marriage. So our culture has redefined it. But the question is, well, what are the right boundaries? Because any definition of marriage is putting some boundaries around it. Wouldn't you agree? Well, what are the right ones? How do we know? That's what we're going back to God's word and what it says in the beginning about his intent and his design. And all of us should care deeply about what God has to say on this. So what is marriage and why does it matter? We've seen God's goodness and God's wisdom and God's truth and beauty on display in creation. We'd all agree with that. Maybe not necessarily in mid-February in Illinois, but God's goodness and beauty are on display in the created world. We've seen God's goodness and beauty and truth and wisdom on display in his commands. We saw that last week in Genesis 2. 
Today we look at God's goodness, truth, beauty, and wisdom on display in the union of a man and a woman, what we call marriage. So if you have your Bible open in Genesis chapter 2, or follow along with me, verses 18 through 25, these are the last few verses of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I'm going to guess there are some familiar lines in there to you. You've heard some of those phrases or lines before, if not maybe the passage in its entirety. Now, before we go any further, again, again, I want to say all of us, married or not, should care deeply about this because it has something to say to us in our culture and for our society. The first thing to notice is the very first line. It's not good that we should be alone. It's not good to be alone. This is not even speaking necessarily about marriage yet, but about just the human condition. You were not made to be alone. We saw huge spikes in, in anxiety, depression, isolation during COVID and beyond. It's damaging to us emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, even physically to live in isolation from one another. We're not made for that. We're not, you were not made to be alone. Even introverts among you. Some of you are like, I like being alone, thank you very much. That's because you live perhaps in a world and an environment where you're constantly bombarded with people. None of us are meant to live in total isolation from one another. God says it's not good that we should be alone. Look at verse 18 again, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What's shocking to me, this is the first not good in all the Bible. Think about that, the creation story. It is good, it is good, and it's good. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was very good. And the one thing is not good, that you should live in isolation. It's not good to be a lone wolf in God's view. And I think it's shocking also that this not good comes into the picture before sin. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebel against God, reject God, transgress his boundaries, and, and break fellowship with him. But that hasn't happened yet. The first not good pronouncement happens before sin enters the picture. The point is, you are made for relationship. First with God and also with each other. And God's solution is not just primarily romantic love between a man and a woman. It's community, it's humanity, it's other people. 
There are no single people without the first marriage. There are no people. God is going to give the opportunity to fulfill what his creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Because it's not good that you should live alone. You're not intended to live alone. Sam Albury wrote an essay. Sam Albury, by the way, is from the UK. I think he's living in Nashville now, working as a pastor. He's a same-sex attracted individual, but living a celibate life. Uh, Writes remarkably about the theology of singleness. He wrote an essay called A Family for Everyone, uh, based on Psalm 68, verse 6, where the psalmist says, God sets the lonely in families. He settles the solitary in homes. He doesn't just mean nuclear families. In our culture, the suburban American culture, the nuclear family, you, my, your, your wife, husband, three kids, a dog, that, that, that's, like the, that's it. That's all we need. Your life is complete if you have that. That's actually foreign to the Bible's view of what it means to live in the family of God. We should have open doors to one another. God bless you if, you, if, he's, if he's given you a nuclear family. But the church is the family of God. Look around for a minute. I know, I like to do this. Actually, look around. Turn your head and look around for a minute. You're looking at your brothers and sisters. Maybe a weird uncle or two in there, right? <laughs> You're looking at the, your family. Family members. Who should, you should love and care for and support and matter to you. And one of the great gifts of the gospel, Albury writes in this essay, is a family to belong to. One of the great longings of the human heart is, where do I belong? Who are my people? And the gospel says, God has given you your people, those who have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, regardless of race, color, creed, gender. Now, not every person is called to be married. Paul wasn't. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, it's good that you're not. So you be focused on Christ. Jesus wasn't. Can we just pause there for a minute? If you're a single person, Jesus is the perfect human. You lack nothing. What you, you don't need a spouse to complete you. You need Christ to complete you. With apologies to Jerry Maguire. So only three of you got that, right? <laughs> We're all called, all of us, into a deep relationship with God through Christ. This brings us to the need for a helper. God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. The word there, ezer, that's the, word, that's the Hebrew word for helper. It's a word that is uh, controversial to some, frequently debated, and honestly hard to translate. Let me give you a little dat- data here. Ezer occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Only twice does it, recur, it occur in reference to the woman. That's here in Genesis chapter 2. Three times in reference to a nation, a foreign nation coming to the help or the aid of Israel who's oppressed and threatened. And the, re- the last 16 times in reference to, can anybody guess? God. 16 times in the Old Testament, the overwhelming majority of the use of that word is a reference to God. And almost every time it refers to God, it's referring to God as a shield, a sword, a defense, an aid in time of trouble couple of examples here. Deuteronomy 33 verses 26 and 29. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your Azer, through the skies in his majesty. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your Azer, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, you shall tread upon their backs. 
Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2, one of my favorite psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my Ezer come? My Ezer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The overwhelming majority of the use of the term is in reference to God who comes to the aid, the rescue, and the help of his people. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, this term means strength, rescue, shield, defense. It simply cannot mean something that refers to inferiority or servant or slave. It just can't. Unless you're going to deny the rest of the use of the term in all the Hebrew scriptures. And too often, it's been sort of implied or overtly stated that, oh, the woman is the helper. Less than. It's not what the term means. It must mean compatible companion, co-laborer, fellow warrior, to come alongside of. One by whom man and woman together will be able to fulfill the command that God gave in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful. Multiply. You can't do that. I mean, this is basic biology. By yourself. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. You can't do that in isolation. You need a partner. Now it's clear that God made woman to be both companion to and co-laborer with man. Mutual concern and shared responsibility under God's authority. We're going to see this in the sameness of man and woman, in the difference of man and woman, which our culture is very confused about, and in the union of man and woman. Look at verses 19 through 23 once more of the text, because this, this can sound a little strange to us at first. So God says, it's not good that you're alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And then he says this, which sounds like a little bit of a change of subject. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. What does that have to do with making woman? Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's something very profound and important for us to understand going on here. First of all, naming. God is uh, bringing the animals to Adam and he names them. Who is the first to name anything in the creation account? God. Do you remember? God separated the light and the darkness, called the light day, and the, the darkness night he called night. The dry ground, the seas, the land. God is the first to name things. He's now passing on his authority to the man. He's giving his authority to the man to name things. I, I know he didn't name them in English, but I can't help thinking about what this was like, right? Was, it, was, it, was Adam like a cat, dog, cow, horse, fly? Like, what was he, like, was he just like hippopotamus, right? What was he like, just make it up? I don't know. Now, what's happening here? Was God just bringing these the creatures to Adam to name them? There's something else happening here. He's bringing them to show Adam something. Now, 
it's not as if God thought, oh, before I go and make something else, let's just see if we got something that works from all the stuff I've already made. Like, I don't think God thought, maybe the rhinoceros would be a good match. I don't think he's thinking that. He's teaching Adam something. What you know you lack, what's not good, can only be provided by me. You will not find it anywhere else but in what I provide. That's what he's showing Adam. Because that's that phrase, right, in verse 20. But for Adam, no helper fit for him was found. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, writes this. When man could not find the thing he sought, then quite apart from his own willing and without any contributive effort on his own part, God gave man the very thing he himself could not supply. And then he has this aside comment. The best things in our lives come to us as gifts. We do not earn them. We do not achieve them. My guess is you, like me, the best things in your life are people. People that you love. Did you earn those people? Did you achieve those people? They're gifts. Probably sitting right next to you. They're gifts of God that he gave to you, unearned, undeserved. I certainly see my wife that way. I didn't deserve her for sure. She'll tell you that. <laughs> Adam goes to sleep for crying out loud. Divine anesthesia. And God makes for him a helper fit for him. Wakes him up and brings her to him. And what, his response in verse 23, if we go back one slide to verse 23. We can go back one slide. There it is. This is the first love poem in human history. The first hymn of human rights. The first song in response to what God has done. Do you know why she's called woman? Some of you know this joke because I've said it before. Because when Adam saw her, he said, Whoa, man. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. No, but Adam sees what God has made and said, This is for me. At last. What I lack, what I've been missing. Made for me. Made from me. For me. And him for her. The, he says she shall be called woman, Isha. For she was taken out of Ish, man. He's, it's a play on words. She's of me. My kind. Here's what Bavink writes about this. The woman is not merely created alongside of him, but out of him. Just as the stuff for making Adam's body was taken from the earth, so the side of Adam is the basis of the life of Eve. But just as out of the dust of the earth the first man became a living being through the breath of life which came from above, so from Adam's side the first woman became a human being by the creative omnipotence of God. She is out of Adam, but she's not Adam. She related to him, but different from him. She belongs to the same kind, yet she occupies her own unique position. She's dependent, yet she is free. She is after Adam and out of Adam, but she owes her existence to God alone. And so she serves to help the man to aid him in his vocation. She is, has received her existence not from the man, but from God, who is responsible to God, who is added to the man as a free and unearned gift. Even the idea of where, the, the idea of the rib. It's, it's, it's the, there's something be, profound being said here. The woman's not made from the foot of man, where she would be inferior, 
or the head of man, where she would be superior, despite what you, some of you may think about. Right? But from the side, equal to, partner with, co-labor alongside of. Mutuality and the perfect fit, in other words. This brings us to the meaning of marriage. I'm borrowing this phrase from a book by Tim and Kathy Keller. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it, married or not. I highly recommend it. We see uh, God's glory on display in the sameness of men and women. They're of the same kind, made from the same stuff, made for each other. But also in the difference of men and women, the distinction. This is something our culture is deeply confused about. Now here we see God's glory and wisdom and beauty on display in the union of man and woman, in the coming together. In other words, it's, it's going to take a gendered pair coming together in, in covenant relationship to reflect the image of God in the world. Can't do it perfectly on our own. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. This is sort of a, like a commentary here by Moses, the author, the Mosaic authorship of, of Genesis, because he's saying going forward, this is a man will leave his father and mother because what would Adam know about leaving father and mother? <laughs> he didn't have one. He's saying from this point forward, a man leaves, there's a leaving and a uniting to and a becoming one of. I don't think it's... It's, it's obvious in the text, but it bears repeating in our culture today that what God sees, what God designs, what God intended for the good flourishing of humanity, this thing we call marriage. And by the way, let me just, let me just step aside for a minute and say, C.S. Lewis once wrote that there should be two definitions of marriage. One by our culture, which is not bound by nor ascribes to the laws of God or the truth of Scripture, and one that we hold to as followers of Jesus. Whether or not you agree with that, I, I think that's reasonable to say. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stamp this on those who would not say that they're trying to follow the authority of, of God. I'm saying for those of us who say we follow Jesus and who say this is our authority, we have to get clear about what God says. And he says that marriage is the coming together in a covenant relationship of one man and one woman for life. One man, one woman for life the monogamous heterosexual union of a man and a woman as long as they live. That's the Genesis 2 pattern. Now, you might be thinking, okay, great. Perfect man, perfect woman, perfect garden, perfect marriage. That's not my experience, Pastor Jeff. Well, that's none of our experience. We all live east of Eden. None of us experience the perfection of it. But it doesn't change the standard that God gave us, what he intends now, you might think, well, okay, that's Old Testament. Doesn't it, doesn't it change? Doesn't it get relaxed a bit as we go? No, never. Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. The Apostle Paul will affirm this. The point is this. 
Nowhere in the New Testament do you ever see any redefinition of, any relaxing of, any changing of the standard that God set in Genesis chapter 2. It's only reaffirmed and strengthened. From the beginning, marriage was designed to be the lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman. There have been and continue to be challenges to this. In the ancient world, the big challenge was polygamy. We see it in the Old Testament. What about multiple wives? Well, though it existed, it's never condoned. We have challenges in our culture. It's not new that there should be challenges to God's standard of anything, he says. Why should we be surprised by that? And again, not every person is meant to be married, but we are all meant to be united to God through Christ, and marriage is meant to be a picture of that union. That's one of the meanings or purposes of marriage. This brings us to the last point I want to make, created for covenant. Created for covenant. We, the covenant is not a, it's a, it's a Bible word. I'm guessing you don't use it very often. We're much more familiar in our culture with contracts. We're a contract culture, right? If you're a sports fan like me, you, you look at the fact that the Bears have the largest salary cap space of any team in the NFL, and I'm prayerfully hopeful that they will use that wisely this year and be not so horrible next year uh, when I watch them play <laughs> faithfully, right? That they'll get some good players. And there'll be contract negotiations, right? There'll be guaranteed contracts, guaranteed money, no trade clauses. And what happens in a contract, whether in sports or in business? You're negotiating, some of you have negotiated your contract for your salary, for your business, right? What do you do? You're, you're negotiating for whose sake? Yours, right? I want to make sure that I get what I'm worth, that I get the most amount of money I can get because you want to protect your rights and, and, and your family and your salary and what you're worth. So you're, you're negotiating back and forth. Nobody negotiates for the other party. That doesn't make any sense. We are familiar with contract culture, and we break contracts all, all the time. But we're, marriage is meant to be a covenant. A covenant is, is exactly the opposite. In a covenant, you're not negotiating for what you're going to get. You're declaring what you will give, regardless of what the other person does. Meaning, I, I'm not negotiating for my rights and my privileges, and, and what I, I'm saying, I'm going to be faithful. Uh, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Even if you betray me, I won't bail out. God is a covenant God. He says this to us through Christ. Knowing that we will run away and reject and ignore and disobey and go our own way, he says, I will make good. I will be faithful when you are not. Can you imagine attending a wedding and hearing contract language in the vows? This is why when I do weddings, I encourage folks not to write their own vows. Or if they do, to put them on the, on the end of traditional vows. Because traditional vows are covenant language. Right? It's faithfulness, what you will do. What you pledge to do. Right? For better, for worse. Richer, for poorer. Till death do us part. Can you imagine being a wedding and if it was contract language? Well, you must give me this. And you must give me this. And you must provide this. And if you don't, like if, like if there's all these clauses, you'd think... What are you doing? That's not a wedding. That, that marriage is in trouble from day one. It betrays what a marriage is. Here's the point. When a man and a woman come together in covenant love, pledging their faithfulness regardless of what comes, they, though imperfectly, are a picture to the world of God's perfect covenant love. It's meant to be a little window into the love of God. We don't have time to get into it, but go read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. 
Paul is talking about the love of Christ for his church, which he calls the bride. Who's the bride? You are. I am. We are. And he goes back and forth between the love of a man and a woman and Christ and the church. So the point is this. When, in Genesis 2, God lays this foundation to fulfill the earth, procreation, but also, and more fundamentally, to be a picture to the world of God's covenant love in action. Our world is in desperate need of more windows into the love of God. And whether you're married, divorced, never going to be married, hope to be married, you should want those same windows. They're not perfect. None of us are. But glimpses of the covenant love of God in action. Because you may not know this. Maybe you do. There's a wedding at the end of the Bible. Did you know this? Genesis 2, verse 25, once more, we see this phrase, how it ends. This is, by the way, Genesis 2 closes with this word, which is such, it's such a beautiful literary uh, it's, it's, it's painting this picture, which is all going to go wrong, and we're going to see how God sets it right. But it's an incredible last line of the close of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's not just talking about, like, romantic sexual love. It's talking about the lack of shame. How many of you look in the mirror and see, after you get out of the shower and think, I love everything I see? <laughs> None of us. Can you imagine life without shame? I mean, think about, let me put it this way to make it clear. A life where at the deepest level of your soul, there was no one to impress, nothing to, to prove, and nothing to hide. You had nothing to hide, no one to impress, and nothing to prove. Because you knew at the deepest level of who you are that you are loved and accepted. We can barely comprehend that kind of life. Because life is tainted by shame. But what we're being told here is there was a time, and there will be a time, when we'll be without shame. Because of the love of Christ. I told you a moment ago that the Bible ends with a wedding. It begins in Genesis 2 with the, with the wedding, the marriage, man and woman. And it ends that way as well. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's you, if you belong to Jesus, has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's a description of no shame. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In the beginning, God brought man and woman together for the multiplication and filling the earth to show us we're not meant to live alone and to point us to his covenant love, which will be fulfilled one day when he returns and claims us as his own. That's the meaning of marriage, friends. That's why it matters so much that we hold fast to what God has actually said. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, I know there are some here for whom this is a hard message to hear. I pray for those that, are, that long to be married, that you would let them know that they are not incomplete as long as they have you. For those that have experienced the pain of a failed marriage, that you would comfort them and remind them that you're not done with them. For those of us that are married, that we would not hear the lies of the evil one who wants to destroy and cause distance and break apart what you have joined together. Thank you for this picture of your covenant love and action. None of us are perfect. None of us get it right. But by your grace, may we reflect your goodness and your love and your mercy in the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you call us your bride and you claim us as your own. Even when we are unfaithful, you are always faithful to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. He is indeed worthy of it all. To you who are the bride of Christ, may the love of God the Father fill you. May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit surround you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forever. Amen. And go in peace.